Before we start the podcast, I want to give you a quick heads up about a way for you to access all the incredible work on our opinions pages and all the other sections of the Washington Post, in-depth coverage about the pandemic, technology, even great recipes. Right now, through the end of the month, you can get a Post subscription for just 99 cents every four weeks. It's an amazing deal that will last only a few more days. Head over to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. Again, that's WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm James Holman, and this is Please Go On. A year after Joe Biden carried Virginia by 10 points, Republican Glenn Youngkin won this month's governor's race by two points. All righty, Virginia, we won this thing! Youngkin's top advisors wrote an op-ed for The Post explaining how a first-time candidate pulled this off. Three of them joined me this week to discuss what we can learn from the off-year election. The two biggest groups of persuadables were non-whites and what I call Peloton dads. That's Jeff Rowe, Youngkin's chief strategist. Democrats really, you know, they had a lease on the suburbs for a long time. I think we're leasing it now. That's Kristen Davison another strategist on the campaign. Calling for mandates, vaccine mandates, is such a wedge with Democrats and their minority base. I don't think they realize the damage they're doing to the base of their party. And that's Chris Wilson, whose firm ran polling and data analytics for Yunkin. Here's our conversation. What was the moment each of you felt like things were clicking, that you would probably win this race. Obviously, there's a long history of the swing happening in Virginia, but a year ago, a lot of people thought this was Terry McAuliffe's race to lose. Was there a, a key turning point? Was it the fall of Afghanistan? Was it Terry McAuliffe's debate gaffe? Was it something else when you felt like we're going to win this thing? I'm a, uh optimist in life, but a pessimist in politics. I think there were about 11 days where I thought we were going to lose. I thought that we were going to win from meeting Glenn because of his talent and um, ability and his his ease of communication style and, and the way he just handled himself and, I don't know, matured as a candidate. But I really thought we were going to do well in the in the convention phase when I saw his work ethic. Discipline, even. D- yeah, discipline. That's a better way to say it. It just felt like it was in the cards. And we never thought that Virginia was a 10-point state. We always thought it was a five-point state, five- or six-point state. And so just the natural environment of an off-year, off-off-year with the Democrat in the White House, it just felt like a coin toss race. Chris? I don't know that I completely agree with Jeff about uh, Virginia being a winnable state. I mean, going into it, I think back to the very first survey we did, which Democrats had a 15-point lead in the generic ballot for governor at that point, which is kind of what it felt like for me. You know, it was coming right off of Biden being elected, and, you know, there was still a lot of anger in the suburbs at Trump. But then for another client, we happened to be in the field in New Jersey right after the Afghanistan failure. And uh, at that point, we saw that that race had closed. And and I think it was Kristen who said, hey, let's get in the field here in Virginia and see what our race looks like. And sure enough, we saw what had gone from a deficit to the race being tied uh, pretty quickly. You write in your op-ed that 
The campaign invested $7.1 million to identify Virginians who wanted to vote early and then to run persuasion ads targeting voter blocks. This seems like something every Republican campaign should be doing and, and hasn't necessarily been. Kristen, do you want to start on that? Well, um, credit to to Glenn. I mean, it really was a top-down strategy from the very beginning. Glenn wanted to make early voting a very important part of the campaign, which is why we invested and focused so much on it. Outside of the $7.1 million, we also had, I think, the biggest election season operation. Usually it's election day, but since it was 45 days, it was election season, where we had over 5,000 poll watchers, volunteer, you know, nearly 300 lawyers, a hotline. And so when... Our voters, you know, those who might have been skeptical of early voting would voice their concern. We reassured them we had a process in place for them to report, you know, any anything that they would they would see. So there was a level of comfort there. And so as the enthusiasm grew on our side and did not grow on, on our opponent's side, it, it just caught on as almost the cool thing to do. We didn't even hear that much pushback from from voters that they didn't want to vote early really seemed like we, we actually were going to win when, when Democrats just weren't showing up. When did you realize turnout was going to be so large? And is this the new norm? You know, we've really seen turnout set records going back to Iowa of 2016. But I will say the Democrats have done a good job of capitalizing on that. And they certainly did with all the rule changes under COVID, in which going into every election I was intimately involved in in 2020, we knew what we had to win on Election Day. Now, you don't know who votes, and in Virginia, there's not party registration, so you don't even know the party, but we had built a model. So we had a scored model for every single voter. When someone cast a vote, we knew that where they were. So they're putting out, uh, and anybody can look it up as Catalyst, and puts out that McCulloch is up 55 to 30, whereas our numbers showed us at 56 to 43, which meant that we only needed to get 55% of the vote on election day to win, which is, uh, was, which was, you know, very doable. And, um, uh, in fact, we exceeded that number. And, and I'll tell you, James, that was not the case in a lot of my races in 2020. I remember races where we had to get 60, 62 percent of the vote on Election Day, and that one makes you sweat. There's more money in politics because campaigns are crowdsourced now. And there was, you know, we got almost 100,000 donors and money drives participation. Negativity drives participation. And when you have two campaigns that spent within a few hundred thousand dollars of each other, about 67 million dollars on both sides, that's just going to drive turnout. And then also because in government's impacting, you know, people's lives every single day and particularly the issues that we were talking about in this campaign, which is cost of living, which impacts everyone and education impacts a lot of people. It's just a highly charged kind of environment. And so is, are we in an environment of higher turnout? I think so, because more money, it's a $16 billion industry. Eight years ago, it was an $8 billion industry. So probably so. Early voting by mail will always be a, a difficult scenario for Republicans. But early voting on balance is a narrow Republican peer-reviewed academic research shows that that's a narrow advantage for Republicans. And so there's no reason why you don't have in the bank Republican voters go vote early. There's no reason. In person, completely safe, completely secure, a normal, no different than voting on election day. And what happens is when we, we know when we know what voters are, our voters, and then we know after, you know, a month after the election, when the when the data comes out, that three and a half, four percent don't vote that have told us for 10 months that they're going to vote. Something happened. 
Now, we don't know what happened. We can't talk to all these people. It's algorithms that tell us that they're going to vote, and they self-report that they're going to vote. But something happened. They got sick, or their kids got sick, or just they had to work late. Who knows what happened? But when we had two weeks, or in this case, 45 days, to turn them out, why are we not turning them out when we have a whole month and a half to do so? That's malpractice. Beto O'Rourke taught me this. Having rallies and a cause where not now that it used to be where you would go and vote and kind of quietly and, and go vote and then go to work. Now you have an I voted sticker. Now you're putting on a hat and a fleece and, a, and you know, a wave a, you know, wave a sign at a rally. Now it's a participation in a movement and a cause and you're joining other people that think the same thing. That's because that's the electoral process. And that's what Glenn created and the issue set created that we ran on. And so now they're, they're actually taking part in something that brings them commonality with their neighbors that, that they've not had before. And so I think early voting has got to be a big component of every campaign going forward. And obviously, we spent you know over 10 percent of our money on it. We thought it was that important. I want to transition to talk about your successful outreach to minority communities, uh, which you talk about a little bit in the piece. You guys write in the piece that you targeted 390,000 Asian American voters, including 2,172 Polynesian voters and 5,457 Central Asians and 66,914 Middle Eastern voters with a vote goal for each group as well as a plan to reach them. You did the same for Latinos. Can you talk about this? We didn't write any of these voters off. One of the first coalitions we put together back in January, February were, were the Black Virginians for Glenn. Um, you know, we had bumper stickers in 12 different languages for every, you know, Asian voter uh, in the state. You know, we weren't afraid of our message. We weren't, you know, afraid of taking Glenn's message into these different communities because what we found is, you know, whether you were a Latino Virginian, a Black Virginian, or an Asian Virginian, you were still concerned about the cost of gas, about the cost of groceries. You still wanted to make sure that your kids were safe in school. And so the, the biggest thing that I think our campaign did that is not often done is we went into places that Republicans either gave up on or wrote off or didn't spend time on. And we just took our message to them. And, and it worked. I mean, we, you know, to, to win the Latino vote, uh, the Asian vote, and to get 27 percent of African-Americans is something that Republicans around the country should, should look at and uh, try to emulate. And I'll tell you, surveys have shown for a long time that Hispanics and minorities have agreed with the Republican Party, working class and value-oriented message. And now that we're able to communicate directly through them and get around sort of an overall critical media bubble, you know, the Youngkin campaign did it in a way that nobody had at a, uh, a specific level in multiple areas that you pointed out in some of the numbers. But yeah, that's the future of politics. I think it's the future of Republican politics. And it's, it leads into a lot of people have asked what this means for 2022. And I think it shows that Republicans have uh, been probably myopically writing off majority Hispanic districts in the past. And I don't think you're going to see that happen uh, in any districts in 22. Jeff, following on that, clearly education, also a huge issue. And just anecdotally in Northern Virginia, it feels like education was was one of the key ways that Youngkin was able to make inroads with with Asian American voters, especially, but also Hispanics. Everyone talks about critical race theory, but also, you know, Thomas Jefferson High School up here, uh, where, you know, where they were trying to get rid of the gifted and talented magnet programs, and Glenn promised to to fight to restore those. How big was education for winning over these minorities? I think it was big because of the cross section it it played in the different buckets of education. 
if you want to call it even reform or a back to norm, when you have advanced math and science being stripped out, as you point out, and that impacted a, a segment of society of school choice in Richmond, where there's less opportunities there. You have critical race, which obviously speaks, you know, to Republicans. And you just and safety in schools, which Loudoun County had the tragedy that happened there. McCullough gave us the gift of putting it all under one bucket and let us speak to all of them, you know, at the same time with one message. Education cuts across party lines. But let me tell you this, our first survey, which I think was in December, but maybe it was either December or early January, I made a statement at the time in the conference room, I re, I've, I've talked about it several times, that non-whites were more persuadable than whites in Virginia at that time. And it was all around those bread and butter issues or kitchen table issues or whatever we're going to call them. Somebody needs to label them something along the way. But the two biggest groups of persuadables were non-whites and what I call Peloton dads that were college-educated men married to college-educated women that were had been Republican but had left the party at some point and getting them back. And so they were, they were, they were approachable and persuadable as well. And those two groups, now we're talking about a bigger pool of persuadable people and the base is amped, the Democrats are depressed, and now we just really have to talk to this one piece of the electorate and those two issues between economy and education, that gets everybody. And that's why education became a big focal point. We took down any advertising on any other subject and went all in on education. And we ran the legs off of education because we knew that that, even if, it, even if they didn't have kids in school, that was a government philosophy that would lead them to make a decision in the race based on Terry's decision in that regard that would lead them to understand how we would make decisions in other regards. If you don't think the parents should have a role in their children's education, that means you're not as concerned with parents' role or people's role in government decisions. And so it really became a, a, you know, a bigger issue that not just even if you're not impacted by education, but just the role of government in people's lives. We'll be right back after a short break. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. The McAuliffe campaign went all in on trying to make Yunkin into Trump in a fleece, I think, as, as Joe Biden called him. It obviously did not work. When you meet Glenn Youngkin, he's not Donald Trump. <laughs> Can you talk about how you managed that Trump dynamic, especially in the closing weeks, as McAuliffe really tried so hard to make that stick? Glenn invested in his own brand and his own, and his own identity and understand why he puts his britches on in the morning and a highly successful guy that knows why he's in office left $108 million on the table to run for governor. We went on television early and stuck with the message and stuck with a positive message about his image and his personality and what he wanted to accomplish, not just from an issue set, but from what he would bring to government, kind of a common sense set. The news cycle just doesn't cover the former president the way they did when he was in. So I don't think this link analysis 
I mean, I ran a lot of ads about Nancy Pelosi and the Democrat run. I mean, I got it. But this isn't a race for Congress, and it's also not a race for Senate. Senate, by the way, is you can have your own brand. A race for governor, a race for Senate, big races, a well-funded race for Congress where you can essentially establish your own identity and brand is a way more powerful tool, particularly when somebody wants to start labeling you as somebody else. And we've seen a lot of election swings. The navigation of, of the president, he has an enormous fan base, he has an enormous, enormously committed group of, of folks that will that find most powerful endorsement in politics on either side of the aisle. And what when when he had a rally, tele town hall rally with them and, and they got motivated to vote, that absolutely helped the campaign and is a positive benefit and accrued positively to our effort. We need everybody to win. We need crossover vote. We need every we need every single body to win. But everybody knew why they were voting for Glenn. And they had to know that first. Kristen, on the strategy side, continuing in, in that vein, were you surprised they went all in on Trump or was that sort of expected? I was surprised that they went all in on it and that they stayed all in on it. It was, you know, Trump, abortion, climate change, Trump, abortion, climate change. Oh, and like, you know, pulling random things out. And instead of sticking with a consistent message, Glenn really ran this a campaign of and, right? So it was, you know, as Jeff was saying, very inclusive and at, at, at some point that stuck and, and, and was not going to be changed. And I'm, I'm more surprised that Terry ran a campaign of or or but. It was either with us or, you know, you're against us. And it was that that was the difference. And it's not what people wanted, especially after a very trying, you know, presidential, you know, high tension, high stakes campaign and an off year. You know, the appetite wasn't there for a but or or campaign. And that's what Terry ran. So I was surprised he didn't shift that and try to get some of the, you know, more positive things that Joe Biden ran on, just totally ignored it and ran a very divisive campaign that he claimed to be running against. Chris, I want to ask you about the issue set there. We've talked about the economy and education. I was surprised by how much COVID faded as an issue in the race, especially in the final weeks. It felt like the McAuliffe people embraced the mandates because they were calculating that they could use that as a wedge. And Yunkin was able to pretty successfully neutralize that. Yeah, I don't know that I agree that fate is an issue, James. I think if there was one dominating issue that I saw coming out of COVID in Virginia, it's the parents wanted their kids in school. And, you know, McAuliffe wouldn't commit to keeping kids in school, whereas Glenn did. I mean, Glenn from the very beginning said that no matter what, kids are going to stay in school. Calling for mandates, vaccine mandates, is such a wedge with Democrats and their minority base. I don't think they realize the damage they're doing to the base of their party. I mean, I hope they don't realize it because it's going to create lots of opportunities around the country. They are taking a group of voters that have been the most loyal to them and driving a wedge right into the middle of it to where it is opening up the opportunity for Republicans who say, no, you shouldn't be mandated. You should be able to keep your job if you decide not to for whatever reason. And let's face it, there's some good reasons for African-Americans not to not want to be forced to have a vaccine shot into them. And uh, I think it is a, it's a tremendous wedge issue. But having said that, I'll go back to where I said before is I think COVID did play a role, but it did so in the sense that parents didn't want to be in a situation. They didn't want a governor who there was any chance were going to take their kids out of school again. On the culture war side, abortion, Democrats were acting like the Texas law was going to be a gift to them. Uh, Yunkin said during the first debate he wouldn't support the Texas law, but didn't blink at all on being pro-life. 
sort of neutralized that issue for them. It didn't galvanize young unmarried women like they clearly expected it would. Can you talk about the abortion issue and the social issues and and how that all tied together? Chairman Colfax has said that he wanted Virginia's abortion law to be an economic engine for the state. Fascinating statement. I mean, I we almost thought about going on offense on abortion the other way, but we eventually talked ourselves out of it. But And abortion is one of the only conservative issues where we gain ground every single year because of technology. We lose ground in guns. We lose ground in a lot of different areas. But abortion, it continues to go our way. And what happens is, and this is survey research driven, is fewer and fewer people want to talk about it. And when you get the people that want to talk about it, it's much more of a split decision than it is any sort of hammer wedge against us. And the, where it is a hammer wedge against us, it's already among decided people. And so I think one of the exit polls show that we won, we won 58-42 about people who had a position on abortion. I mean, that's kind of the, because the balance of people don't. You know, they, they might be personally pro-life and just don't want to talk about it. So that's, that's, what, that's the balance of people. But of the people that are most passionate, there's more passion and intensity on the life side than on the choice side. So we never feared that. We definitely did not decide to run a campaign based on it. But yeah, we're just being bashful on issues. The chase and the long discussion on the issues is what creates problems for folks when they just don't know how far they could go or what am I supposed to say? Just speak from your heart, have a very clear position and voters will sort out the balance. It's when you don't look authentic. I think that is a key thing in politics and all respect to polling firms and, and data and everything else. You can't poll an answer here. What you do is you have a set of fundamental principles and values and then find a way to cogently articulate that position and let the voters make up their own mind because voters are very forgiving to not have 100% agreement as long as you believe what you're saying. Obviously, candidates matter. You've talked about how Youngkin was a good candidate. How much should Democrats worry from what you were able to do in Virginia this year? Well, it's been funny watching some of the the, the Democrat analysis and, and feedback. It doesn't seem like they learned too much. So I don't fear doing these podcasts and giving away the secret sauce because I don't think they're listening to it. Going to voters that others have written off for a long time, that can be replicated in, in every race. Being authentic and defining your brand and staying true to it instead of trying to copy someone else's is something that can be replicated and is successful. And being disciplined on, on message and focusing, you know, not just with blaring on, you know, a person's TV, but actually sitting at their kitchen table and hearing what matters to them and and staying talking about that. I mean, one, one thing that uh, just on the different issues that Terry threw at us that came up, it didn't matter. We knew what we were talking about. We knew people cared about cost of living, education, and public safety. We were going to talk about that all day long, no matter what he wanted to talk about. It didn't matter. So Candace can take away the, those messages. You see, you know, in Virginia, Democrats really, you know, they had a lease on the suburbs for a long time. I think we're leasing it now. But when you when you look at some of the rural areas, I mean, we Republicans have bought and paid the mortgage on these areas. Absolutely. Chris, final thought? Well, your point earlier about abortion, I, I want to touch on that because I really think that's they saw that as their way of winning women. And, you know, Mitt Romney lost women by nine points. Trump in 16 lost them by 17 points. Gillespie lost them by 22 points. And Trump in 20 lost them by 23 points. 
Glenn Young can only lost by six points. And the reason for that is because it wasn't an issue that mattered. Education mattered. All the things that you were just talking about, we've been talking about mattered. But the key thing there is independent women. And independent women, we did a survey, and 29% prefer a pro-life candidate, 44% prefer a pro-choice candidate, and 27% don't care. And so they doubled down on that, and you're going to see them continue to do it. And I think Kristen's right. You're going to, I mean, the fact that you saw Terry McAuliffe campaign at the end with Randy Weingarter shows that he learned none of the lessons from the education debate. So they're going to run the same sort of campaigns. But I think, yeah, take your message to the dinner table as a message for 22. Don't write voters off. Kristen said that. And I think that's a key thing. I think we as Republicans have done a horrible job campaigning in minority communities. As Jeff said at the outset, that's one of the things that Glenn Young can said from the beginning. I'm not writing anybody off. I'm going to find the voters that agree with me, and we're going to go take the message to them. Stay on message. Don't be pulled into national issues. I, I got to give Jeff and Kristen credit because, you know, when you had the Biden thing exploding and everybody was saying, oh, you got to go talk about Biden. You got to go talk about Biden. Or at one point, you had somebody say, you got to go talk about Pelosi. Jeff and Kristen just were very consistent, said, no, we're going to stay on the message of Glenn Young and what matters to local voters. And then it's self-serving, but I'm just say it anyway. I think the ability to invest in data early, know who's going to vote, communicate with those voters from the beginning. So you're not doing something like where you're spending millions of dollars on Hulu when you've only got a few thousand persuadable voters there. Jeff, thoughts on the replicability of what you guys did for next year? The lesson is that the middle of the road voters believe that Biden and the Democrats writ large are talking about issues that they don't care about and they're not talking about issues that affect them every single day. And that is a death sentence for the midterms. Jeff Rowe, Chris Wilson, and Kristen Davison, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about how you did it. All right, well, and these things, you always get more credit when you win than you deserve and more blame when you lose. So we're happy to take a little bit on the good <laughs> side. We've, we've been on the other side before. The Virginia results and a close call in the New Jersey governor's race have put Democrats on edge. And for good reason. The latest Washington Post-ABC News poll finds that nationally, if elections were held today, 51% of registered voters would back the Republican candidate for Congress, and 41% would back the Democrat. This is a historically strong result for Republicans on what's called the generic ballot. It's a bigger advantage than they had going into the 2010 or 2014 midterms which saw red waves. Maybe that helps explain why so many Democratic members of Congress keep announcing plans to retire. Please Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock with editing from Allison Michaels, Michael Duffy, and Renita Jablonski. This episode was mixed by Veronica Simonetti. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. A link to the op-ed by our guests is in the show notes. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please give us a rating and review. I'm James Homan, and I'll be back in December with new episodes because there's always more to say. <laughs> <laughs>